Today on CityCast DC, we're talking about go-go music. When I say go-go, you say, is DC. Go-go. Go-go. That's Mayor Muriel Bowser declaring it the official music of DC back in 2020. But we're here to talk about it today in a more literal sense. What we love about it, how it shaped the city, and the way the city has shaped it. All of it. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Michael Schaefer. And I'm Bridget Todd. And And this this is CityCast DC. So wait, you were born here in Washington, D.C., but you are not a Washingtonian by upbringing. You grew up outside Richmond, right? That is correct. But you are like a lifelong born here, raised here, still here. Yeah. I mean, there were some like gaps in that track record, but D.C. is is home, always has been. But so what you said like when we first met, that one of the unique things about D.C. to you was go-go music, which I don't know if they were listening to that where you grew up. But tell me, like, when did you first encounter it? So I hate to say this, and I wish it wasn't the case, but I really didn't get into go-go or really have go-go on my radar until I moved back to the D.C. area in around like 2007, 2008. And probably like a lot of people who are either relocating to D.C. or finding themselves in the area, it was just walking around hearing go-go music played on street corners like Florida Avenue, just being blasted. I fell in love with it really when I moved from D.C. to San Francisco. And I remember I was trying to explain to people out there what go-go music is and where it comes from. And I was like, oh, it's like a high-energy, percussion-heavy music. And I remember my coworker was like, oh, you mean like reggae? And I was like, oh, no, not reggae. I was having the hardest time explaining it. And I really didn't fall in love with it as this genre that was really an expression of D.C. uniquely until I left D.C. because I was so homesick for it. Right, right, right. And now it's like the official, like the classic example of the homegrown genre in D.C. that never really struck it big anywhere else. I don't know about that. Bustin' Loose is a national hit. Right. I just think if you can name like the two hits, then it's probably <laughs> safe to say it's a local taste. Okay, fair, fair. No, I mean, look, at I grew up in, in D.C. in like the 80s. And, you know, it was a different time. It was before the internet, because I'm old, and before Spotify and stuff. So you just, you wound up like just osmotically absorbing stuff that everyone else was into. And like you said, walking around town or just listening to what other people were hearing on the radio or whatever, it just seeps in. And I was like a white kid from Northwest who was into like, punk and metal and stuff. Like I wasn't seeking it out, but it just, it became like the sort of soundtrack of the city. You'd hear drummers around and, you know, in those days, go-go acts would come up and play up in the upper Northwest. And it was just like a thing. Nowadays, we talk about it like it's this sort of special magical thing. And it like, it was so ubiquitous as to not feel that way then. Yeah. I mean, the last time that you and I got together, you raised a really interesting point that at first I didn't agree with, but I'm coming around, that you're not so keen on the fact that Go-Go has been named the official music of D.C. Right. So like in 2020, the D.C. Council, in their wisdom and in their anxiety that I think most Washingtonians feel about this really rapid demographic change that has happened and the fear that sort of this chocolate city is being eclipsed, decided like, hey, let's name Go-Go the official music of D.C. And it was like, who can object to that? Because it is homegrown music. And 
the like old like punk rocker in me was like, no, like we cannot. The idea that grownups, legislative officials, were going to be naming anything the official music seemed like wrong to me. And you know, I remember in the like eighties and nineties, the establishment, black, white, whatever we're all very alarmed at go-go music. It was dangerous. It was dirty. It was, you know, associated with bad things. And now it's been uh, taken into the bosom of the establishment, which is great because it's lucky for them, but lucky for the establishment, that is. But like, I hope that there are young people in a basement somewhere who are doing something that would scare and confuse me in terms of music and that that music is not official. Yeah. So I... I've completely come around to your point of view. When we first had this conversation, I was like, how do you, you know, oppose this? What else would the official music of DC be other than go-go? But now I think that you're absolutely right. And then thinking about like, oh, well, when did go-go have a meaningful presence in my own life? It really has to have been summer of 2020 when all the different racial justice uprisings were happening all over the world. But in D.C., I remember a lot of those uprisings were go-go turnups and like outdoor, like Mochella, like that kind of thing. And you really saw go-go as linked to protest and resilience. And so I think that really speaks to your point that is that something that you want getting the official stamp of approval right. from the government in D.C.? Probably not, because that sort of goes against the resiliency of it. And I think we can stipulate that, like, it's better to have a local government that is in favor of a cool local art form than one that is actively against it. <laughs> it's just that that term, official music, it feels like taking something real and vibrant and putting it behind glass in a museum, which, again, it's good to celebrate something. But in the process of putting something behind glass, you sap it of its vibrancy. I think that's true. I compared it to other cities, like back when I was sort of more in favor of it. I really love that in New Orleans, they have a lot of intentionality around the way that Black art is really preserved there. It's because like people come to New Orleans to experience jazz, to experience Black creative expression. And so that you would want that to be reflected in, in the way the city governs and by the way policy is made. And so when DC named Go-Go the official music, I was like, oh, it's like New Orleans, like a nod to the fact that Black creativity is like such a big part of D.C., but I can see how it's also this like meaningless gesture that is rooted in racial and economic anxieties that really doesn't serve anybody, but makes it seem as though they're, it's so progressive, they're doing such the right thing and all of that. Right. And the difference in New Orleans is like people, tourists go to New Orleans to hear jazz. They go to New Orleans in part because it was this cauldron of creative culture, creative African-American culture, mostly. And DC, I love you, baby, but I don't <laughs> think a lot of out-of-towners are coming here to check out GoGo. I wish they were, but but that's not like our brand. Do you know what I mean? It pains me, but I think you're right. Like I was just thinking the last <laughs> two times I've been to GoGo events, it's local. Like it's not the, you're right. It isn't the kind of thing people come from out of town necessarily to experience. I wish it was, but it's not. You know, they named the G League team, the Wizards G League team, owned by Ted Leonsis, the Capital City Go-Go, uh, which is, again, it's I think that's cool. But it is a bit of a like, you know, this thing has been around long enough that it's being co-opted for commercial purposes, for branding purposes. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it beats the alternative. But it is like a different moment. It, it, and to some extent, culture gets defanged when that happens. And I think to add on to that, Go-Go historically had fangs, police targeting go-go clubs and go-go musicians and saying that they invited crime and the seedy element. Like, you can't talk about the legacy of go-go music in D.C. without 
talking about some of those parts that are less flattering to the establishment. And then so to see the establishment acting as if it's always embraced it as this beautiful thing, it is a little discordant. Right. And in in the establishment's defense, some of the things are maybe not that positively reflecting on Gogo. There was a lot of songs about women's butts. Um, <laughs> and they were not necessarily told from like an inclusive body positive point of view. You know? It wasn't like, oh, that butt is so empowered. <laughs> right. <laughs> that butt's going to college. And I do think, you know, there was like a sort of a class of church lady wagging her finger at Gogo, which, you know, look, I think I'm a First Amendment absolutist, so songs should be about whatever they want. But I don't necessarily know that that would be the proudest thing to defend. <laughs> fair, fair. The finger-wagging church ladies might have a point on that one. Right, right. But your thing about politics is totally right, too, in that it was a big feature in 2020. And I think there's sort of two reasons for that. One is just as a form of music, it is really given to outdoor gathering and performance mm. sort of impromptu. It's not like you have to like tune up and hit all the marks exactly perfectly. It can, it has a kind of come on along quality to it, which is inherently good for like the democracy of the streets. And also, I think at this point, part of its identity is as a like kind of walking, talking, dancing middle finger aimed at the sort of buttoned up, cleaned up, gentrified new DC. A thousand percent. When I was doing a lot of protesting in 2020, there would be this like flatbed truck with the musicians on the back of it and they would just pull up into crowds. It like felt like a dance party. And I would see people who were not affiliated with the protests walking by who would just be like, oh, what is this? I'm going to join. So by the end of it, it was like a massive street party. But to your point around the middle finger to the sort of like buttoned up gentrified DC, was there ever a better example of that than that spat between somebody at that condo development, the Shea, who wanted them to turn off the go-go music on Florida Avenue. And it became such a big thing. And it's like, I usually try to resist reading into stuff like that because it's so easy. But this one was just so perfect. Like, can you have a more perfect encapsulation of exactly what you were just describing? That button-up, gentrified, white, newcomer element of D.C., really turning up its nose at something that has been part of D.C. for such a long time. Well, let me ask you a counterfactual. What if that store had been playing like Motley Crue or like ACDC or some kind of like... Oh, shut it down. Right. <laughs> I don't mean to parse things too much, but there was a sort of elitist class disdain there that would probably have applied to like lowbrow white people forms of music too. <laughs> But it did have like more power and pain on the far end, on the other side of the punch, because it was go-go and because it was a black crowd who was feeling like their stuff was getting shut down. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But I also think that it plays into something where I think black and brown folks and low-income folks in D.C. have spent a lot of time feeling and being told in a million different ways that they are not a priority. And so I think it really wasn't about the music. I think it was just just one more way to be told that you're not a priority, your experience is not a priority. And so I, I agree with you. I don't think it's, it was necessarily about the music. I think it was about simmering frustration that I think some folks feel in the city. And I think that like that frustration in D.C. is just like a half inch beneath the surface and it can come out all kinds of ways. Oof. That's, I, I love how you put that. Oh, I was going to ask, do you have a favorite Go-Go song? I always like Drop the Bomb by uh, Trouble Funk and uh, Work the Walls. But, you know, I mean, it's a kind of music also where it's more about just the constancy than any particular track. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've gone to Go-Go events where I could not tell you like a, the name of a single song played. And like, it kind of feels like 
it just was like one long groove, if you know what I mean. Right. <laughs> uh, if I was asked my favorite Go-Go track, it would probably be Rare Essence's cover of Ashley Simpson's Pieces of Me. And mm-hmm. the reason why I love that song is that most people are probably familiar with Ashley Simpson, you know, that song. And that I, I like the original as She's well. She's not the official music, just to yes. be clear. <laughs> but that's the thing about Go-Go. There are so many good covers of songs that you would not expect to be covered by a Go-Go band necessarily. And they can turn a flop into a bop. And it's just like, I think that example, and again, no no shame to Ashley Simpson because I love that song, the original, but the go-go version is like, they heard something in that song that, that I don't think Ashley Simpson heard in that song. You know, the other thing with, I mean, I think it's hard to talk about go-go music without talking about the sort of the period of the 20th and early 21st centuries that DC was Chocolate City and the sort of solidarity and so on that came with that. But it is like a a period in time, like any other. And there was a period when Washington was like an epicenter of bluegrass music, because people from Appalachia, would this was the closest big city. And there was a time when Washington was a epicenter of Dixieland jazz, similarly. I didn't know that. And, um, yeah. And like, it is a good thing that we are not stuck continuing to listen to and have obligatory celebrations of that. Not because there's anything wrong with that, those genres, but because it is weird and probably not a sign of creative health to press pause uh, on anything in the culture. Mm, that's such a good point in that I want to be in a city that is always evolving, dynamic, and that's kind of beautiful. And we shouldn't necessarily, you know, try to put something under glass and preserve it the same way forever. Let things change. So we were talking about how Go-Go isn't really this national thing that people really recognize or respect outside of D.C. necessarily. And I remember a few years ago, Wale, the rapper, who's also from D.C., put out a mixtape that was, like, very well-regarded. It was on the Pitchfork list and all of that. It was mixtape about nothing, and it's, like, based on the sitcom Seinfeld. And a lot of the beats are Go-Go-inspired, Go-Go-infused. And I remember thinking, like, oh, this is going to put Go-Go on the map. Go-Go is about to be huge. That didn't actually end up happening. But I do feel like there are some big artists that if they ever wanted to do, like, a Go-Go mixtape or do a song that is go-go inspired could possibly be the next bust and loose, right? And so I would love to see like a Lizzo like like crossover. <laughs> I think that would really do it. There's also this really good New Orleans bounce version of the Sade song Kiss of Life, which you know was like a really smooth R&B song, but the New Orleans bounce version is very high energy. I could see somebody doing a really good like Sade or some other kind of R&B song, but to a go-go beat and really giving it like a new energy. I could see any of those things really putting go-go on the map nationally again. Uh, or someone could just make School Days Part 2. Oh, yeah. Because uh, that the EU song got big because Spike Lee put it in his movie. Are you referring to Da Butt? <laughs> I am referring to Da Butt, yes. They could do a remake, but then it's like, Really talking about how DeBud is empowered, DeBud deserves equal pay, a, a more like 2022, you know, progressive version. Historically not a woke genre, but I think <laughs> if you were to turn it around, that would be awesome. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. This was amazing. It was really fun. And I will see you sometime soon. Can't wait to listen to GoGo with you at some point in the future. You got it. And before we let you go, we've got some quick news to catch you up on. 
For 12 days, there's a chance you might see a NASA aircraft flying above Interstate 95. No, it's not going to space. Instead, it's collecting atmospheric data, and you can track it in real time on NASA's website. Meanwhile, DC firefighters are investigating why RFK Stadium burst into flames on Tuesday afternoon. The fire chief says they found literal, quote, piles of trash, unquote, burning on the ground level. No one was hurt, so of course Twitter had a field day with the news. The stadium hasn't had a tenant in years and is set for demolition soon. Finally, red pandas are back in the city. The three pandas, Scarlet, Xena, and Taizong, are living at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute in Front Royal. Let's hope these ones don't escape. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Coates-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. And you can get bonus content by subscribing to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Tuesday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. What we love about it, how it shaped the city, and the way the shitty... Ha- what we- <laughs> well, well, well. <laughs> Y'all didn't hear that. <laughs>